You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's March 3rd. For 20 years, the U.S. pursued a single policy objective in Afghanistan prevent a terrorist organization from using the country as a safe haven that might allow the group to carry out an attack against America. Despite deteriorating conditions and no apparent hope of military victory, this goal remained constant. To understand why U.S. objectives in Afghanistan did not evolve, RAND researchers interviewed senior leaders involved in policy decision-making between 2001 and 2016. Overall, they found that the expanding, open-ended mission in Afghanistan led America into a policy trap in which victory seemed impossible, but withdrawal was not politically or psychologically palatable. Here are some additional takeaways from our report. First, the absence of clear, achievable metrics for success in Afghanistan led to strategic scope creep as decision-makers sought a strategy that would secure a positive outcome in the conflict. Second, early decisions, such as lumping together the Taliban and al-Qaeda, prevented a political settlement in the early years of the conflict that might have made peace attainable. Third, tension and mistrust characterized civil-military relations. The nature of the conflict forced the military into areas beyond its expertise, and led to significant civilian involvement in military strategy and resourcing. Further, frictions between civilian and military leaders and with the intelligence community prevented fundamental reassessments of the mission. Fourth and finally, policies and strategic objectives were difficult to adjust during the conflict because of bureaucratic inertia and the related momentum of the existing mission. As demonstrated by this analysis, America's experience in Afghanistan shows that de-escalating a conflict under conditions short of victory is tremendously difficult, both practically and politically. You can find the full report at RAND.org. The recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, resulted in a discharge of vinyl chloride, a cancer-causing substance that was later burned to prevent an explosion. Beyond the obvious concerns about contaminated air and water, which aren't yet fully understood and could unfold over decades, this disaster is more than just a public health crisis. According to RAND experts, the derailment also highlights a troubling national security issue. How exactly? Well, national security is about protecting a nation, its people, and their well-being. This means that certain aspects of infrastructure and services are so fundamental to the very functioning of society that they must also be considered critical to national security. These essential functions and systems include a secure food supply and energy supplies and protection against environmental threats. To underscore our researchers' point, consider a scenario in which a major international response is required, let's say during a war. America's degraded infrastructure, as well as its dangerous practices of routing hazardous cargo through population centers and its inadequately staffed response crews, would make mobilization for such a response slow and precarious. 
Put another way, if U.S. infrastructure and disaster response are already struggling during peacetime, then in wartime, they would likely collapse. Gun violence is a nationwide problem. But high firearm mortality in America sometimes obscures enormous state differences in firearm homicides and suicides. For example, Mississippi has a firearm death rate more than seven times higher than that of Massachusetts or Hawaii, and five times higher than that of New Jersey. A new interactive RAND tool sheds light on state-by-state gun mortality data and shows the effects of different state gun laws. Here's a rundown of some key findings. There are wide and geographically specific differences in state firearm homicide rates. For instance, states in the Northeast, West, and North Central regions have low firearm homicide rates, while states in the Central Midwest and South have among the highest. Rates of firearm suicides are especially low in several Northeastern states, as well as in California and Hawaii. In contrast, firearm suicide rates are high in the Mountain West and Mid-South. In fact, rates in Wyoming, Montana, and Alaska are more than eight times higher than rates in Massachusetts or New Jersey. Risk of firearm homicide is more than 10 times higher for non-Hispanic black populations than non-Hispanic white populations nationally. This was the largest demographic disparity found in our data analysis. Firearm homicide rates decrease with each successively older age group, while firearm suicide rates increase with age. Firearm death rates are lower in urban counties than in non-urban counties. This is driven by higher rates of firearm suicide in non-urban areas. The complete results of this study can be found at rand.org slash gun policy. While you're there, you can try the tool for yourself to see your state's data on firearm deaths, compare your state's mortality rate to the national rate, and see how different gun laws may affect gun deaths. Earlier this week, RAND President and CEO Jason Matheny presented to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He discussed two serious threats to national security, advances in synthetic biology, or SYNBIO, and artificial intelligence. Both technologies hold the potential to broadly transform entire industries, Matheny said, including medicine, manufacturing, and energy, all of which are critical to America's future economic competitiveness. Synbio and AI pose grave security challenges for which the U.S. is currently unprepared, he said. In the case of Synbio, new tools could enable a state group, or individual to construct novel viruses capable of killing many millions of people. And in the case of AI, new tools could be used to create novel cyber weapons and disinformation attacks at a scale we haven't seen before. Addressing such risks won't be easy. Synbio and AI are advancing very quickly, typically outpacing policies and organizational reforms within government. And assessments of these technologies require expertise that is concentrated in the private sector and that has rarely been involved in national security. To this end, Matheny emphasizes that solutions will likely require structural reforms in the intelligence community. For example, it could be helpful for national intelligence to focus more on emerging and disruptive technology topics, especially Synbio and AI. 
It may also be wise to require an intelligence strategy for science and technology to significantly expand collection and analysis of information on authoritarian states involved in Symbio and AI. And finally, leaders could consider encouraging the creation of a framework to share classified science and technology intelligence with high-technology U.S. allies. Use of hospice care has increased sharply in recent years. About half of Medicare recipients who died in 2020 received hospice services. That's compared to fewer than 25% in 2000. Hospice care is provided by both nonprofits and by for-profit companies. A new RAND study examined the potential differences in patients' experiences between the two. Our researchers analyzed responses to more than 650,000 surveys of family caregivers whose loved ones were treated by more than 3,100 hospices nationally. All types of hospice settings were a part of the analysis, including home-based care, hospice inpatient care, and hospice care provided in a nursing home. We found that patients at for-profit hospices have substantially worse care experiences than those who receive care from nonprofit hospices. More specifically, the survey data revealed that family caregivers of patients treated by for-profit hospices were nearly five percentage points less likely than those in nonprofit hospices to definitely recommend their hospice to others. The results of this study are especially concerning given the striking growth of for-profit hospices, which have profit incentives that have been shown to affect how they care for patients. That's it for today's episode. You can read more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at ram.org slash podcast. And if you missed last week's special episode on the war in Ukraine, where I sat down with RAND researcher Dara Massico, be sure to go back in your feed and check it out. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. We'll see you next week.